Hey everyone, it's Cappy. Want to give you a quick heads up that this episode you're about to hear was recorded back in February at the Food Network and Cooking Channel South Beach Wine and Food Festival. It's no surprise that many things got thrown off course this year, but we're very excited to be able to share this episode with you. Features one of the most important chefs in the country. With that, this is Beyond the Plate, a podcast where we sit down with the world's culinary elite to explore their journey into the food industry and the social impact they have made in their community. Today's guest is Chef Michelle Nishan. This episode is made possible with the help of our friends at Wickles Pickles. All right, everyone, this is a family-owned company. These pickles are made using a 90-year-old family recipe, and they are packed proudly in Alabama. You've heard me talk about them before. As I mentioned, they have two varieties, the original Wicked Brine, which is a little sweet with some heat there, and then they have a Dirty Dill line, which is going to be more of your classic dill flavor. My favorites, hands down, is their Wicked Jalapeno Relish, and they have a spicy red sandwich spread. Be sure to check those out. And also, if you caught that amazing Bloody Mary recipe last Friday on the Beyond the Drink episode, you may want to toss in some of their Wicked Garden Mix or the Wicked Okra in there. Here's what I also love about Wickles Pickles. Wickles believes in giving back to their community through donating food and other resources. They support various organizations, including food banks and community food programs, as well as disaster relief efforts. To learn more about Wickles Pickles and their whole line of products, please visit wickelspickles.com and follow them on social media at Wickles Pickles. Wickles, we thank you. Today's guest is a chef, author, and food equity advocate. I think Michelle Nishan is one of the most important chefs of our time. I truly do. I'll go as far as to put him up there with the likes of the Alice Waters, Jose Andres, and Dan Barbers of the world, and you'll see what I mean. He's been at it, the sustainable local agriculture thing. He's been doing this for well, well over 20 years. He's an incredible chef. He's a tireless fighter to get better quality food choices to people in need. I'll say I know from personal experience with my day job, working with Rachel Ray's Cooking and Kids Charity, his nonprofit Wholesome Wave is a great partner of ours. So I know the work they do firsthand, which we'll hear about more during this episode. Furthermore, Chef Michel Nishan is maybe most notably known for his time at a Heartbeat restaurant in the W Hotel. He was the executive chef there. This was one of the first restaurants to really focus on good for you food. Also, he was part of the Dressing Room restaurant in Westport, Connecticut. He had this with his longtime friend, the late Paul Newman. In 1994, Michelle's then five-year-old son was diagnosed with juvenile diabetes. So he shifted his focus on his cuisine into pure, flavorful, local, organic foods without highly processed ingredients. He was one of the early chefs to do this. So in 2007, down the road there, he founded the nonprofit called Wholesome Wave, which I briefly mentioned. Their mission is to inspire underserved consumers to make healthier food choices by increasing affordable access to fresh, healthful fruits and vegetables. He's the author of three cookbooks on sustainable food systems and healthful cooking and the James Beard Foundation 2015 Humanitarian of the Year. Before we get going, I do want to mention we have some awesome merch, which you can find in the link in your podcast player or at beyondtheplatemerch.com. We have some great tees and hoodies and hats, so make sure to check those out. So please enjoy this episode as we go Beyond the Plate with Chef Michelle Nishan. Count for me. One, 
to, I can't count. <laughs> you assume, you assume much. <laughs> Thanks for doing this, man. Yeah, my I pleasure, appreciate man. appreciate it. Yeah, so good to be with you. Are you kidding me, man? When I, like, when I started coming up with this concept of Beyond the Plate and having chefs share the social impact that they make in their community, you're like, way up on that list oh wow <laughs> granted you know it's been a few seasons but our schedules you know it's hard to yeah. link up well you know we're we're busy we're traveling at the speed of change yeah that's exactly right i feel like we've discussed this and i can't remember fully but after researching you were born in evanston i was i was no yes St. Francis Hospital. Oh, we have discussed this. I was Evanston. Evanston, Evanston Hospital. Hospital. Yeah, yeah, we did. I think, okay, yeah, got it, got it. <laughs> That's so funny. I was, I was looking, I was like, wait a second. It's kind of like bears, cubs. Right. <laughs> did you spend time there or were you? Well, I, I, I lived four years in Evanston, but then, you know, my, my mom and dad at the time were living with my grandparents on my dad's side. They had like a side-by-side -side thing. And then they bought their first home in Des Plaines. So I was really raised in Des Plaines until, you know, junior year in high school. And then really? we moved up to Antioch. Yeah. What? Yeah. I didn't know this. Yeah. I, I, I went to Maine West. No shit. Graduated from Antioch High. That was a little bit of a letdown. I went from a graduating class of like 870 to a graduating class of 34. That's so crazy. <laughs> yeah, I did not crazy. know that. Yeah. Yeah, man. So... What was young Michelle Nishan like, like little boy? Well, you know, it was, well, it was interesting first because the name was a little bit of a challenge being raised in Chicago with that name. So when Johnny Cash came out with Boy Named Sue, it's kind of like my tune, you know, but, you know, Summers, the interesting thing was Summers, my, my grandfather tried to hold on to his family farm for as long as he could. After World War II was when the real big kind of ag push to consolidate farming and food production, because now that there was a World War II, everybody was convinced there would be a World War III. So producing, stockpiling, storing, preserving as much food as possible was something that was, actually became policy. You like were born into this. Yeah, food, I was born into agriculture it. Agriculture thing. You know, so so we used to. It, it became very difficult for my grandfather. So it didn't favor those policies. Favored really large scale agriculture. Rightly so. It was a. It, it really was a national defense issue at the time. Uh, it, it didn't favor small scale agriculture. But my grandfather didn't want to let the farm go. So we would sell off a little pieces of it, you know, to keep the bills paid and 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 to try to stay solvent and. Uh, he had 13 children, so my, me, my older brother, all of my cousins would go down every summer, and we were the migrant farm workers. And where was the farm? <laughs> Morley, Missouri, which is in the Boot Heel, down in southeastern Missouri. So up, up against the Mississippi River, it's the headwaters of the Mississippi Delta, super, super fertile. So he, he raised chickens, pigs, goats, watermelons, oh, root crops, sweet corn. Absolutely. Oh my gosh. <laughs> it's where, that's how I learned how to cook. Okay. So were you cooking from a young age? Very young age. I mean, my, my earliest, so everyone's like, what's your earliest food memory? It was me standing on a step stool in the kitchen with my mom. And it was around my birthday. It was the middle of October. And I was standing on a step stool trying to put my pinky and thumb together to show her I was three. And, and we were canning tomatoes. 
She was, I was watching. You were three. Yeah, I was the apple core. I was the, you know. And the interesting thing is my older brother and some of the other siblings couldn't be less interested in cooking and food. How many siblings do you have? I had two brothers and one sister. So I was the one who got the culinary gene. And my mom was a brilliant cook. Really? As were many of you know, my aunts and uncles, all of her brothers and sisters were just, just fantastic. So, you know, just, but, but to me, it was just normal. Yeah. I didn't think it was anything special until they fell on hard times when I was in high school and I had to move out and get a job. So I got a job where at least I could eat. What are some favorite things mom used to make? Oh, okay. so my, my all time very favorite was her chicken and dumplings, which she always served with a side of fried chicken. Cause you, you have the chicken Brilliant. that's from the chicken in the pot, right? because you got to do that. And that, that's what you cook the dumplings in. So you have all that really soft, beautiful, you know, gently poached. She, she called it boiling, but it was really gently yeah. poached. <laughs> she, they, Southerners have one term for everything, right? <laughs> but, you know, so you had that, but then to have the crispy fried chicken. That's brilliant. Yeah, you know, I, I, on the side was just Really, really amazing. But, you know, smothered pork chops. Southern style. Yeah, kind of, well, like South Central Midwest. I, I call it more country cooking. It, it is Southern, but, you know, they were more kind of Germanic. So they were noodle dumplings. They weren't drop dumplings, which is more Southern, Southern. So it's a you know, kind of a hybrid, but definitely country cooking. Collard greens, all that. Are there still like recipes or dishes that you cook or recreate from, the, from childhood? Absolutely. Yeah, man. I mean, how, how can I not? So for one, the, the whole genuine hospitality thing is my mom really missed her calling. She should have been a restaurateur. She would have been famous. She just, she really believed and said these words, you know, you can love people through food. It's like the, the greatest thing about this. And, and, and her whole notion of being connected growing up as a farm girl, it's like, you know, we, dirt is alive. Water is a living thing, you know? Without it, the seed does nothing. You manage that and you get this amazing tomato or ear of corn or whatever it is that you're growing, moon and stars, watermelon, and then you serve it in a way that makes it even more wildly amazing, which is often just salt, pepper, and fire um, in country cooking. And it just what it does to the people that you're feeding their face, their soul, you see it, you sense it. It's just, you're, you're literally loving them through food. You're impacting them through food. She believed that. And, and she said those words often. So it just, to me, I, I can't not cook the recipes that she cooked for me as a child. Cause it's, to me, it's like, I, I really do believe her soul lives there. That's amazing. Dishes. Yeah. It's kind of, I got to do them. Yeah. That's <laughs> yeah. fantastic. So I, if I wanted people to get to know you a little better, what three words would you use to describe yourself? Oh, God. Oh, wow. Oh, uh-oh. Um, flawed. <laughs> you, know, you know, we're all human. It's so funny. It's, um, you, know, I, you know, my own worst enemy sometimes when it comes to um, how I view myself in wanting, you know, just, I, 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 I want to be like everybody's very best possible friend. But as you move through life, you make mistakes and, you know, you unintentionally, or at least I feel like I let people down sometime and it's, you know, it's a horror. So I, I just, I, 
I, I look in the mirror a lot. It's almost like uh, some of my some of my Jewish friends are like, "You should be Jewish." <laughs> <You know? laughs> <It's> funny, <laughs> you know. So that that's one of them. I I do see myself as that, um, but I do think I'm real. You know, back in the early days when you know heartbeat was really humming and it was so controversial and everybody was like talking about it back in the mid nineties and how crazy it was for, you know, this kid to do like a cuisine of well-being, have a restaurant that at the time didn't have butter or cream, still got good reviews, but got totally canned by the New York post accused of being the food police. You know, it's like I did that. And there, there were a lot of tugs for me to become like the healthy Bobby Flay and all of that stuff. And I just, I, I, I couldn't, go there because that was at the time that I started realizing that there were Americans with three, four kids, a single parent, that when they run out of food stamps in the middle of the month, they have $2 to spend on dinner tonight for four or five people. You started realizing this in the 90s. Yeah. Wow. And it's just like, well, like late 90s when I came to that realization, because the whole notion of Heartbeat was the only restaurant of well-being. Where was it? It was at the first W Hotel ever. So on 49th and Lexington. Yeah. And it was so no butter, no cream, no flour, no sugar. How do you make sauce and dessert? <laughs> you know? So, you know, if, if you juice sweet potatoes and you let the juice stand for like four to eight hours so that a lot of the starch falls off, you can reduce it like a cream sauce. Looks like a disaster for about an hour, but then once it reduces down and the remaining starch catches up, you have one of the most beautiful sweet potato sauces ever. <laughs> yeah. Wow. So we, we had to imagine that cream and butter didn't exist. I mean, thankfully, back then it was the science of assumption, doctors and scientists, because the obesity epidemic, those two words weren't yet put together, but everybody knew America was getting fatter. Uh, more overweight and that heart disease was on the rise. So the assumption was they learned that cholesterol causes heart disease. So you should stop eating anything that has cholesterol only to learn 10 years later after the Framingham studies that dietary cholesterol has nothing to do with the cholesterol in your veins, right? And that fat doesn't make you obese, that processed carbohydrates make you obese. So, but at the time I had to go with the science. My son, Chris was type one diabetic. That's why I did heartbeat. I couldn't feed my customers something I wouldn't feed my son, but it, it was the only restaurant because I, I, my conscience wouldn't allow me to serve people baby goat poached in Applewood smoked bacon fat anymore. <laughs> yeah. Though I'm doing that now that fat isn't bad. <laughs> so, right, right. But, but anyway, so I just, I, I think I'm real um, because of that. Got it. Flawed, real. Oh, I'm missing a word. Yeah. There was a third, and, and, but I loved where we just went. I, 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 hope, I hope I'm nice. Okay. Yeah, my you mom, are. My mom is like... I'll confirm. Be kind. Yeah. You know, just be kind. I agree. We were just with uh, your daughter before. Oh, here. Courtney. <laughs> so She's my amazing. question for you is, what three words do you think she would use to describe dad? Annoying. <laughs> Uh, <laughs> yeah, definitely annoying. I think, I, I don't know what the word for it would be, but I know she believes in me. I, I know that. I, I also have this weird thing about when people ask me questions about myself, I actually don't like it being about myself. <laughs> so it's like, you'll probably see Courtney later today so you can ask her what the word is. I'm but I, I do, you know, I do, I admire her. I know she admires me. 
you know, and I know she would say loving because Lori, my wife and I have been married for 35 years and we're very much in love. We hold hands. We, you know, it's never changed. And, and I do know that all of my kids notice that and appreciate that. And, and they, that's their definition of love is largely informed by mine and Lori's relationship. So I would say she would say that I'm loving, loving, annoying and something else. Got it. That you'll have to ask her. I'm for. going to. I'm going to. So, what did you have for dinner last night? So we we had for dinner last night. I'm here for. Um, there's a company that's a sponsor here this year that has a product called the Great American Turkey Company. I've seen them all over. I haven't yeah. heard of it, but so now they, I have. You know, they benefit Wholesome Wave. You know, say if you know when they're they're just launching in Publix, you know, throughout the southeast. In, in Miami, like 1,200 stores. And when people at Publix like buy these turkey products, which I helped design the recipes for because it benefits Wholesome Way, they really are tasty. It's really great, convenience stuff. You know, George Faison from, you know, back in the D'Artagnan years, he's sourcing the turkey. So it's a sustainably sourced, all this good stuff. But when they sell stuff, you know, they, money will go to Wholesome Way. So I was at the Great American Turkey And for the listeners, we, yeah. we're going to get into um, what exactly Wholesome Wave is um, yeah, cool. a oh, little cool. bit later. Good, good. Yeah. yeah, so so anyway, I was at that booth and they were doing, uh, we do this uh, broccoli rob, um, you know, broccoli rob and uh, cheese, turkey sausage. It's it's raw product, right? But they, you know, they, they toss the cooked sliced hot sausage with spinach and roasted cherry tomatoes with bocaccini mozzarella and that's all I ate last night because I was at the booth <laughs> so yeah. it's like I couldn't get to any of the other booths so to check anybody so else's you stuff. like tried that dish at the beginning and then you mingled and explained it to people and then you realized you were maybe hungry and then you had another plate of it type I had, thing? no I had like six, yeah. six, six <laughs> well the, the bowls at these things are so small right yeah. <laughs> so, like yeah. so that's what I had for dinner did you develop this recipe I did what's your favorite way to eat turkey. Oh my, so, do you love Thanksgiving? I, I, I absolutely adore Thanksgiving, but I, I do bum out a little bit that turkeys turned into this like once a year thing. It's tough on the farmers because you think of all the farmers that, you know, just regular farmers that actually have full growing seasons and their stuff's in demand year round, often have to rely on off farm income because, you know, especially if you're growing responsibly or sustainably. If you're not a large scale farmer, you don't get a lot of the price supports that the larger farmers get, you know, so the turkey guys are really screwed, you know, and gals, a lot of these farmers are women. They, they raise the crop. It's once a year, they're in a price taking position because someone will come along and say, yeah, I'm going to take all your turkeys for this price. Mm. You know, so where, you know, I, I, I love turkey year round. I actually, when I was doing heartbeat, I'm like, what an incredible alternative to red meat. It's interesting you say that. There's a Mexican chef in Chicago, Diana. Uh, she has a restaurant, Mitokaya, and she had a turkey. When I first went to her restaurant, she had turkey, a turkey dish on the menu with a mole from her right. hometown in Mexico. Yeah, 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 yeah. And I was like, this is so brilliant and intriguing because you don't see turkey necessarily on a menu yeah. and, every and day. It, and it's know? meaty and it's full flavored. And it's a really clean protein. I mean, it's really good to eat. So, you know, we tried to do that at Heartbeat and just got frustrated by a couple of things. One is when we could find some folks and it was at the time, it was like, you know, Patrick Martins just started Heritage Food USA. He was still the president of Slow Food USA, but he did Heritage 
Food USA, and he had some turkey farmers that were doing the heirloom turkeys, you know, the the broad-breasted bronze, the the bourbon, the Narragansetts, all that stuff. So there were some farmers we could get to grow stuff for us other times of the year, and we'd pay the premium because we did a lot of that at Heartbeat. But then anybody who was like a non-Asian or a non-European diner would come into the restaurant and say, why, do I, why would I order something with turkey? It's not Thanksgiving. It's, yeah, <laughs> it's just like it's crazy. Yeah, it's, it's, it's kind of wild. But, um, you know, the, so you, you, you look at the sustainability and the carbon footprint of turkey compared to so many. Uh, it's like, you know, if we could eat a little less of some of the other things and get more of these birds into practice and put these farmers in an economic position to thrive, it would be good for everybody. Um, but anyway... Um, so I, I ate turkey last night. There you go. <laughs> All good. The I long way it. around. No, I love it. I wanted, I wanted the long way. I know you don't like fielding questions about you, but you have been called a leader in the sustainable food movement. So I feel like this will always be an ongoing discussion uh, because everybody has their own definition of yeah. what this means, right? So how do you define sustainable food? You know, I, I love the work that the United Nations has done with their kind of global stakeholder engagement around the question and actually the word, the words that they came up with. And, you know, the word that I really appreciate and in, in my mind was always actually the one word definition of sustainable is regenerative because you know sustainable for the if 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 we could wind back the clock you know several hundred years there was soil health plenty of soil health in plenty of places in the world where sustainable practice maintaining that status quo would have been good enough but we need to restore what's been lost we need to fix what's been broken and simply approaching it from a from sustainable as you know you're not going to take out more than you put in type thing isn't enough we actually need to put put more in than what we're taking out currently because there's been so much soil degradation so much water table degradation you know the things that are the ingredients the delicious ingredients that make a plant thrive so an animal can thrive or makes a pasture thrive so that an animal can thrive those things have been lost and and we we and there are ways that it can be done but so it's i think of it more as regenerative we have to regenerate the health that's been stripped so that we can get back to an environment that we're stewarding that can provide us the type of abundance we need to feed eight billion people i have a question that just popped into my head so it's kind of off script if you will for me but you had your finger on this pulse in the 90s it's a very hot topic. It's been a hot topic for a good amount of years and is food waste, sustainable food, farm to table, all those buzzwords that we hear. How do you, I feel like you could kind of smile when people are getting all this notoriety today for that, which is, is a good thing that they're getting notoriety for that. But like, how do you deal with that course? Like, how do you deal with, I've been doing this for 20 years or you know no so you know it, i'm i'm glad you asked that question no one's ever asked me that i've, I've actually the my, the first deal i did with a farmer was in 1980 in milwaukee wisconsin it was a young couple 
they had inherited recently inherited a soy a soy corn oat rotation farm out in Oconomowoc, Wisconsin. I couldn't stand. I had been my my grand my grandpa died when I was like seventeen. I was twenty, just turning twenty one. Got my first job as a chef in a French restaurant, in Milwaukee, and and for those four years of my grandfather being passed away. I couldn't find a ripe tomato. <laughs> yeah, I couldn't find a sweet potato where when you broke, break it in half, the milk weeps out of it. It's so fresh and so lush. So I went out to the countryside, knocked on doors, got doors slammed in my face, found this couple who said, you know, my parents used to grow specialty crops. I had never heard that before. Specialty crops, fruits and vegetables. The thing we're supposed to eat five servings a day of, right? So I go, I'm like, you know, they said, yeah, our parents used to have a family vegetable. They were, they were a little bit older than me. I think they were like in their late 20s, um, maybe 30-ish. So I said, well, listen, if we get some seed catalogs and I pick some stuff and I pay you in advance, I can forecast what I'm going to need. You grow it for me. I'll pay you half up front because I knew the crop insurance would be important to them, you know, you know, because it's like, well, what if this guy gets hit by a car or he changes his mind or he gets fired? You know, we're going to have like all this stuff and we're not going to get paid for it. So and, and so then I said, and then I'll pay you the other half when you deliver it. And they're like, I'm not going to fucking deliver. <laughs> it's like we're, we're going to be harvesting oats and corn and soy, you know, we'll water it, we'll weed it, it'll be healthy you got to figure out another way to get it. So we used to go and pick it up. But I, I, I did that in eight, 1980. I was doing that. And Alice had been doing it for, I, I think she started like in the mid-70s. But I didn't, nobody knew who she was. I didn't know her. Odessa Piper was doing it out in Madison, Wisconsin. We did, none of us knew each other. None of us, we, we were just trying to. No one was tweeting about it. To do that. Well, yeah. <laughs> there, were, there were still dial phones with, and if, if you wanted privacy, like you had rotary. to buy the really extra long cord, <laughs> right? We just wanted to feed people good food. And we wanted the people that were growing the food to have a chance to send their kids to school, you know, and pay the bills and simple stuff like that, but just really good food, you know? So yeah, I've been at it for a long time, but I've always been shitty at like branding and self-branding, you know, because I don't like it being about, and I'm good with that. And frankly, the fact that so many people are doing it now means that I've succeeded, Odessa's succeeded, Peter Hoffman succeeded. Leading, leading by example. Who, okay, you know, th this isn't something any one person should own. You know, it's just, it's not mine. <laughs> my mom and, and my grandfather and his grandmother and grandfather, this is the way they were feeding each other and just doing business. I just think it's awesome that it's becoming so prevalent and top of mind now that we might actually, it might actually come back to be the new normal. And then I think, the world is in a better place. So I'm cool with it. Yeah. I don't care good. if nobody knows my name. Good, you know? good, good. I should, my daughter's trying to change that. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Leave it to Courtney. Yeah. So you, correct me if I'm wrong, four time James Beard Award winner. And yeah. one of those is Humanitarian of the Year Award. Yeah, which is, so, so now, since they gave that to me, they have to now call it the now, there, there, there goes the Neighborhood Award. <laughs> <laughs> That's funny. <laughs> Rest assured, folks listening, when I Googled some of Chef Michelle's other accolades, there's hmm, probably well over 25 
other awards he's received? There's, I you just, just you, talked you about. I wonder branding. what's on people's mind. I but, don't know. But you just talked about branding. Do these accolades matter to you? Yeah, I mean, yes, they do. Um, because really, until 2005 ish, you know, between 2005 and 2000, 2010, nobody was offering, and still nobody is, and they should. You know, why isn't the Food Network doing something on? the subjects we're speaking about right now and and the richness and the depth and the authenticity. I mean, it's like millennials and Gen Zs are all about authenticity. This is important content that people should have access to, right? You know, but there there was no money in it. So you don't do it for the money. You you do it because you you see something that in in deep in your heart you really honest to God feel cannot stand. And you also realize that if you're the only person who's doing it, it's standing everywhere except for where you happen to be standing at the moment. So you want everybody doing it. And you know that you've succeeded when someone calls you up and says, hey, we want to give you an award for this thing that you've done. And it, 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 I got to tell you, in most cases, I was always stunned. But it's because when you're doing this work and you're not doing it for the money and you're not doing it to build an empire, your your feet are really in the clay and your elbow deep in mud. And it, it gives you an opportunity to pick your head up and look around and say, holy shit, lots of people are doing it now. And clearly important people care about it or they wouldn't be acknowledging me for, you know, my small part that I've done in this. So from that perspective, it's wildly valuable to me. It's kind of my pay, you know, because because the things that I've chosen to do in my life are not the things that you make money at. Sure, yeah. <laughs> Trust me, I started doing charity work in my early twenties, and and people are like, "Wait, don't people usually dedicate their life to this like after they've made it or have the money or the time or whatever?" You know, during your career, let's call it, which is still thriving. Was there a moment that you ever wanted to throw in the towel? Oh, yeah. Yeah, sure. Lots of them. So it's, it's kind of hard for me to find a defining moment. I mean, there, there, there have been times when I had popularity, but, you know, didn't have a, a restaurant empire, you know, five kids, uh, the majority of my marriage with Lori, who is an astonishing human being. We've lived paycheck to paycheck, you know, and... You know, at times when it seemed like the systems that really needed to kind of shift to have the things that, you know, I idealistically believed should be become a new normal. There have been times when the seeming intractability of that system and its unwillingness to move and sometimes actually having very, very powerful forces zero in on you to say, oh, that we, we need to shut these kinds of people up. That can be really scary, you know, and just like, why am I doing this? It's like I could, I could get a corporate job on the other side of this fence and do really, really well for myself, or I could just throw all my talent back in, you know, have six, eight, 10 establishments, do the volume, drive the name, build the brand, make the money there. I've, I've wrestled with that, you know. Well, it's interesting for you, I guess, because you probably dealt with it from a kitchen for profit chef side, if you will. 
but also you probably deal with that in the philanthropic side. Oh, absolutely. Like coming up against a brick wall, feeling like you need to bust it down and you're going to bust it down, but something's getting in the way. Yeah. And, you know, do you stop? But you can't stop because you've no, gone you this far. You know, you can't stop. And, and the thing is, is that it's all, you know, it's so we all know as human beings and, and, and it's not a surprise to anybody that we all have our dark side, right? Everybody acknowledges that. We also have our moments where we just want to burn something down, blow something up, absolutely quit, whatever it might be. But you, you, have to, you have to live in that and experience it and allow you to have those feelings and emotions. But you have to be careful about how you express them, if you express them at all, and whom you might express them to, if you express them at all. It's all part of how you reason your way through it. And it's, it's usually at the bottom of the pit of that moment. It's where you actually are like, now I know that I am at the bottom. So now I know I can start climbing up again. It's like, you can't give up. You can't give up. Yeah. You just can't give it's up. It's hard when you're in it. But well, when, when you love things, it's like when you love the earth, when you love a perfectly ripe tomato, when you love Woozy Wickford, this crazy woman who raises the most beautiful, wild, different varieties of chickens so that you can actually get to know the difference between breeds through their egg, <laughs> you know? The egg defines who she is, is something that Woozy would say. It's like, these are souls that matter. These are things that matter, right? So it's like, if you love those things, you can't stop. Then it's not real love. So the, you know, the, the I, I am guilty of loving. I love to love. I love things. And, and that, that's the thing that, that, that always keeps me going. But like in the philanthropic world, it's like, you know, this current political climate, you know, Wholesome Wave took a really hard hit this year when, when the, you know, the, so we know that, that the White House, you know, took a run at the SNAP program and cut five and a half billion out for able-bodied adults without disabilities, ABODs. That's a million people that are gonna end up off of the food stamp rolls, but they've also been cutting the agencies while the farm bill passed by a broad bipartisan margin, no one was gonna not sign that bill, you know, because it was so bipartisan. But the, the things that, that they would rather have not have been in that bill, the way they went at it is they could use their administrative power because they are the executive branch of government. They, they could go to these departments that they're responsible for and restructure them. So the National Institutes of Food and Agriculture was cut by 50%, moved to Kansas City, and the, half of the remaining staff didn't want to move from Maryland to Kansas. So they're, they're running at 25% capacity. We had a policy win where the legislation that doubled food stamps when spent on fruits and vegetables was increased to baseline, so it's permanent. It's hard to get the money out when you, ha when you have only 25% of your staff. So community-based organizations in the field that rely on us, that we rely on to get the work and the data to keep this work moving, are really being cannibalized by these actions. So in moving forward with these, you're relying on partners. Yeah. Not relying, but partnering, yeah. the power of partnership, if you will. Yeah, power of partnership. So, you know, for a lot of people, you know, they look at these things, you know, the, the administration cut the PREDICT program. This is, a, this is a program that was very favored by both George W. Bush and, and, and Barack Obama that actually funded $250 million a year to try to predict where the next pandemic was going to happen. Here we are with the coronavirus and PREDICT has been shut down. 
you know? So it's just, you know, so people are like, a lot of people are running around with their hair on fire, understandably, because these are big, big, big. There are a lot of implications for this. And if this, this type of political approach remains in place for another four years, it can get worse. What I've learned over the years, because there were times in my career where I ran around with my hair on fire and learned how unproductive that was, <laughs> you know, that it's just like now more than ever, is up to us, which I think is how we're going to recapture our democracy. Yeah. Actually. That's yeah. interesting. Yeah. As you've, for listeners, it's hard not to talk about social impact when you're with this man. <laughs> it's amazing. But, and I want to get into that, but I have one more thing I want to touch sure. on. Because sure. you were a founder and partner with the legendary Paul Newman. Yes. Can you share a lesson you learned from this man in your time at dressing room restaurant? Yes. When Paul and I were working through what the restaurant would be, how it would feel, what it would look like, we had lots of lunches together, usually hamburgers at Mario's because it was his favorite hamburger in Westport. And I never really met someone who was so interested in the little things of my life. You know, tell me what your, so what was your dad like? You know, right? Tell him, oh, he loved fishing. You know, you know, his big dream was retire with my mom, get a tavern on a lake. He would take people out fishing during the day. They would come back and my mom would have a meal cooked. You know, it's kind of like, you know, luckily my mom loves feeding people because I thought my dad was being really chauvinistic <laughs> in his vision, Whatever, you know, and, but he would like drill down on my mom, my dad. He's like, so what, what were some of your dad's favorite things? I'm like, like what? He's like, well, did he have a favorite chair? I'm like, well, no, he really liked knotty pine paddling. Right. So I'm like, we're having all these random conversations and it didn't dawn on me until the day our beer taps were in place, the lines were run, they were clean, they were flushed, they were ready. And his favorite beer by draft was Sam Smith Nut Brown. So he's like, when, when a keg of that comes in, you know, call me. And I want us to be the first to crack the keg open and draw, draw beer at the bar. I want us to be the first customers of the restaurant. So, so we did it and we were sitting there in this restaurant where he had harvested southern yellow pine floorboards from tobacco barns. You know, all, all of these details as he started kind of bringing up conversations about my mother and father as we're sitting there drinking the beer. And he looked at me and he said, so does this look enough like a tavern on a lake for you? And I, I, I'm like, it's like knotty pine paneling. It's like all of the things. It's wild. That, you know, my parents really kind of loved. And he said, yeah, I, I tried to get Winslow Park to put in a lake for you. <laughs> <laughs> he was just joking, but who does that? Yeah. You know, it's just like, you know, if you really... And he, he always told me, he's like, I really appreciate you doing this restaurant with me. I know that you're going to buy from local people. I know that we're going to be able to trust that our money is going to the right thing. You know, you're not, he, he, one of the things he loved about me is he, he used to, we'd be having conversation. He'd say these weird quotes and I'd be like, what? And, and finally he did a quote and I was like, 
what and, and he said have you seen any of my movies <laughs> <laughs> so he's like you know he he's like i you're not doing this because of me because it's paul newman he's like you're doing this because we believe in the same things and i just wanted to make sure that it reflects who you are and both your parents are gone and you know this should be their home they should be here today it's just like who does that it's incredible so so he, what i learned from him was that is is as nice as i think i am i could really and i've tried to as much as i can have do the same thing for other people mm. <laughs> you know it's just like yeah you know talk about valuing somebody that's amazing uh, crazy amazing can we talk about this i guess it's semi-new venture with wholesome crave oh yeah we yeah, talked about cool. wholesome soup. wave which we're going to get into yeah. but soup soup baby wholesome crave tell us about it yeah so wholesome crave you know it, it's so funny the idea comes is inspired by newman's own you know when when paul and and hotch uh, rest his soul. You know, A. Hotchner just passed away beginning last week, I think. But the two of them kind of did this salad dressing thing that turned into a food company when it when it was clear that it was going to become real and everybody wanted it. Grocery stores across the country, they they had to do the pause and say, okay, what are we going to do? How how do we want to set the business up? And Paul's like, me, all my kids, my family, we have more money than we're ever going to need. Give it all away. So eventually, they ended up structuring the companies in a way where they had established Newman's own foundation. Paul handed over the intellectual property of the foundation. The foundation then licenses the name to a for-profit food company that makes the food and sells it. And then they take a royalty off the top so that they maximize the donation to the foundation. That's what we've kind of done with Wholesome Wave and Wholesome Crave. Got so it. Wholesome Wave is my nonprofit that operates in in almost every state with community-based organizations raising private money to double food stamps when spent on fruits and vegetables, the the institute that just got cut. You know, so we're in the weeds, but but you know that that organization is does amazing things, but we constantly have to ask people for money. So a friend of mine said, you know, there's this guy named Paul Newman. You might have known him. You know, he sells stuff and then gives the money. <laughs> so so um, we, we kind of aimed at scaled food service. And it actually was a really good friend of mine, Fidel Bauchio from yeah. Bon Appetit bon, Management, yeah. who's like, Michelle, soup is, is the place and plant-based is the place. And you're so authentic and genuine. The whole give back thing, you know, these young college students, millennials, these Gen Zs, they can Google you 26 ways to Sunday and find nothing but sunshine. You can bring an authentic product to market. And soup is the most labor intensive, facilities intensive thing for a large scale facility to make. I mean, when you're feeding 200 people a day at dressing room, you know, you, you taking all of your scraps and leftovers and turning them into something delicious is a real moneymaker. When you're feeding 40,000 people a day with 15 different installations on campus and satellite kitchens and moving that, trying to get the waste to a place where you're heating it up and cooling it down to HACCP regulations, having to have all the individuals, it's, it's a nightmare. So we decided to start a soup company. So we do plant-based soups, all whole foods, no slurries. Yeah, fresh refrigerated, 
no preservatives, you know, 90 day shelf life because of Cryovac, yeah. you know, hot pack Cryovac. <laughs> and that's what we're doing. So Google and Mountain View was our first company. They started in March. They're, they're loving our stuff. We sell like a thousand cases every like other week or something wow. to these guys. It's still a startup. I mean, you know, we obviously need to, our dream is to get the business to, you know, like 50, 100 million, you know, so that we can spin off because 5% of all revenues is going to go back to wholesome wave you know and so then it just this whole notion it's you know you were at the thing that jose was talking about today you know with world central kitchens and their brilliant work it's like with everything going on in the world climate change isn't going away because no one's doing anything about it government agencies really aren't set up to handle disasters in a way that feed people the way they need to be feeded when they needed to be fed so chefs have taken into their own own hands when i learned about the family of five with $2 to spend on dinner for all five people, you know, I'm a chef. We can, we can fix it. Let's not, the government isn't fixing it. Let's figure out ways to do it, you know? So that's, yeah, my, my dream is that Wholesome Craig becomes wildly successful and can fund a lot, a lot of these initiatives. I love that. By selling stuff. Yeah, it's amazing. You know, so, uh, so that's, you know, wish me luck. It's still a startup. I don't know if you need it, but good luck. Yeah. So we already segued into our, our last section here, social impact and, and giving back. And as you just mentioned, we both just came from a, a, a small round table gathering of some of the world's best chefs and, and how to activate, how they can take ownership of Jose Andres World Central Kitchen, whether it's the money, their voice, their time. So with all that said, these are some of the ways that chefs give back. Obviously, there's more, some of the main ones. So I will say no legality stuff here by any means, but for full disclosure for the listener, through my work that I do with Rachel Ray and her foundation and yeah, charity, amen. we've worked with Wholesome Wave Foundation. Absolutely. So uh, I'm excited to chat about that. So more people can, I mean, if, if you haven't gotten it already, you'll get it, but you've probably gotten it already, the magnitude of, of Chef Michelle's generosity. So we can probably do five episodes on <laughs> how you give back to set the stage for this. I think we um, bored your listeners yeah. enough for one day. <laughs> how, so we, we, I guess we talked about how, how when you decided of, of where you're going to give, but you know, you mentioned Wholesome Way, Chef's Action Network, you know, Farm Bill you mentioned, I guess overall encompassing its food and supporting access to healthy, locally grown fruits, vegetables for people who need it, right? I feel like we've covered everything I wanted to ask within this scope, but can you just lay the groundwork Tell us about Wholesome Wave. Yeah, absolutely. Or Chef's Action Action, all, yeah. all of it. Well, you know, it all kind of like, it all plugs in. So, you know, I'll, I'll, I'll tell the story about Wholesome Wave and then I think how it then just broadcasts to what I believe to be a naturally manifest truth of human spirituality. Because that's, that's what I believe this all comes from. My mother had that, right? How can you be someone who feeds people? And it, it takes some of the younger feeders to actually learn the fact that, that the thing that jazzes them the most about what they're doing is that it makes them happy to make somebody happy, right? So when you have that gene, so, you know, my, my, my journey began when, when I did Heartbeat, it was in reaction to my son, Chris, 
being diagnosed with type 1 diabetes. We did research over a very short period of time. I had an income. I'm a chef. When the endocrinologist said, what you do with Chris's food will have more to do with his long-term survival than anything else, I could do it. <laughs> I, had, I had the financial resources. I had the knowledge, right? I did the research. All of a sudden, I was feeding people things I wouldn't feed Chris. I did heartbeat. I was kind of feeling good about it. it was the one time in my life when I still had a, a, a bigger ego than I have now, and I was patting myself on the back, and, and then started learning about these families that have the $2 for five people for dinner, and I could only do heartbeat because my customers could afford $30 for an entree, and I felt like a failure. I, I thought that, that couldn't stand. But there's no business model for five people who have $2 to spend. That's, that check average, nothing's gonna fly in that environment. You know, it's, it's, it's instant noodles with condensed milk. It's instant rice with cream of mushroom soup. And it just, it was killing me. You know, Michael Batterberry was still alive. I don't know if you remember him, the original founder of Food and Wine Magazine and then Food Arts Magazine, introduced me to Gus Schumacher, former Undersecretary of Agriculture under Bill Clinton, who believed in the same things. We were both hitting walls, but he, and, and Batterberry had this just magic touch for introducing the right people. It wasn't an engineer or gene. I think it was a spiritual thing, but it's like once he plugged Gus and I in, that our ideas about it that were incomplete started becoming complete together. We like completed each other. And we started looking at big systems where lots of money was going, but not being effectively, as effectively spent as it could be, whether because it was under, uh, underfunded, over-administered, you know, SNAP, WIC, et cetera. And just looking at these federal benefits that just weren't enough to give people the ability to put a head of broccoli on the table <laughs> with the minute rice dinner, which would dramatically change the way that that highly processed carbohydrate dinner would metabolize, yeah. help them avoid type 2 diabetes. So yeah. we just got the idea of how do we get people to buy more fruits and vegetables, put, put the money in their hands that allows them to do it. How do we do it? Two for one fruit and vegetable sale. You know, buy anything you want with your food stamps. But if you come over here to this farmer's market and you buy fruits and vegetables, we'll double your money. It's exploded. You know, yeah. We started that 12 years ago pretty quickly. in when we saw we were getting some traction with agriculture policy, first the food, food insecurity, nutrition incentive program that was made baseline in this last farm bill, which means it's permanent now, $250 million for the field to double food stamps for fruits and vegetables, named after Gus Schumacher the Gus Schumacher Nutrition Incentive Program, <laughs> but the agency that <laughs> deploys it was cut by 75%. But anyway, it's like we saw we were getting this traction, so we're like, let's aim at health policy. So we created fruit and vegetable prescriptions, which are now a movement. So we're working with both houses of Congress, with community-based organizations in the field to try to aggregate and, and coordinate the movement in a way that there might be a future where Medicare and Medicaid will reimburse an at-risk family that's low income for making healthy food purchases. So it's like, instead of waiting for them to get sick and paying for their amputation or paying for their medication or paying for their dialysis, let's reimburse them for the food so they never need the dialysis, which is $100,000 per year per one single patient. Can buy a lot of food for 100,000 yeah. bucks, man. You know, so, so that's what Wholesome Wave does. And oh, that's uh, it. 
you know, we <laughs> started it back like 12 years ago. All along the journey, you know, chef friends of mine always have been, how do we help? How do we help? How do we help? You know, Eric Kessler um, approached me like six, seven years ago. He, this is a genius guy who founded a philanthropic advisory group called Arabella Advisors. They have offices in all the major cities and they, they, they advise billions in philanthropy every year. But he, he did this thing because he had celebrity musician clients who he could see were really deeply hungry for something more meaningful because their managers would attach their name to this, to this, to this, to this. Sometimes it would hurt their brand because they didn't do the deep dive, and, but they, they just wanted more meaning. So Eric was the expert at, let's help you find the one thing that deep down inside your soul cannot stand. Interesting. And be about that and put all your resources into just that. And you have all of these fans, you have all these social networks. If you believe in that and you become an expert on that, look at the army that you can mobilize around rainforest deforestation, you know, or what, whatever the issues are. It's like, it's how Sting chose, you know, the rainforest. It's, you know, that type of a thing. So he's like, hey, if it works with musicians, will it work with chefs? And I said, yeah. So we started piloting it partnering with the James Beard Foundation, and it's now become one of the pillars of their impact program. So 300 chefs have been through boot camp. You know, there's a waiting list of almost a thousand. Yeah, so it's like, now, now you take that, that's the Chef's Action Network. So these are chefs who are about ta ta tackling issues like migrant farm worker rights, animal antibiotics and growth hormones in the food supply, food insecurity, whatever it might be, uh, living wage issues. Yeah, whatever your issue is, the methodology to successfully advocate, whether it's in the political realm or the corporate realm, all those tools are the same. So the whole thing about the network is get the person to, to learn how to advocate for the thing that cannot stand in their mind mm -hmm. and they're gonna be really good at it. Yep. And it's working, you know, so, so I just think it, just like you asked me the question of, you know, you, you've been doing this thing for a long time. Now there's all these people doing it that are getting credit for it. How do you feel about it? I feel good about it. I, lo I look at the whole thing. It's like I was doing Wholesome Wave like a, re a long time ago. And now it's like, look at what Jose is doing. You know, look at what, what Bill Telepan is doing, you know, with wellness in the schools. Look at what, you know, Ann Cooper is doing with the Chef Ann Foundation. It's just like, to me, it's like there needs to be a shit ton of that. It, there needs to be a bunch. There needs to be so much that, that the names of the people that are engaged in it melt away into the background and it just becomes a new way of life, a new way of doing business in America, right? You know, so it's, there really is a movement and it's led by chefs because they've got that spiritual DNA that whether they can admit it or not, they just love feeding people and making them happy. And what better way to do it when you can feed the people who have the least ability to exercise a right to choose anything meaningful for their family. You know, whether it's in a disaster area, whether it's in a poor rural community, whether it's in a, in a plighted urban area, you know, if, if there's anybody who's gonna figure out ways to fix that, it's gonna be us. Yeah, couldn't agree with you more. I love that, thank you. I'll send you this audio and you could turn it into a commercial if you want. That's great. <laughs> <laughs> Let's do a quick speed round. Speed round, okay. Name a smell in the kitchen you love. Pot roast. 
Name a smell in the kitchen you hate. Rotten food. What pisses you off in the kitchen? Lack of genuine concern for the integrity and the beauty of the product that nature has provided us. Lovely. The ingredients. Don't disrespect the ingredient. Yes. What makes you happy in the kitchen? Good smells and lots of noise from action and activity that aren't raised voices. Hmm. Tell me one of your most favorite dishes or a dish that is meaningful to you. It's actually, I'm going to give you one that's meaningful to people I've recently cooked for. Okay. Uh, as I've, I've been an auction item lately, and, and me and Tom Colicchio were an auction item for the Jacques Pepin Foundation at Adrian Grenier's house in Brooklyn. And, and uh, I'm saying this dish because we, we were an auction item last year, and, and I cooked this, and I was practically begged to do it again. <laughs> Amazing. <laughs> and Tom really appreciates it. So I don't do red meat often. Uh, I don't do steak often. It's a dry, long-cured cowboy ribeye cooked so black and crisp, you think you're going to eat charcoal, and it's one of the most delicious things you'll ever put in your mouth. That sounds delicious. <laughs> it is. <laughs> Amazing. So in closing, a lot of charities, foundations, philanthropists say in an ideal world, the issue that they're working on is cured or solved or they didn't have to advocate for it anymore because it's gone. So in a perfect world, what does this look like for you? For me, in a perfect world, Every human being, regardless of income, has the ability to choose good food, good, solid, healthy, clean food to feed their family well, regardless of their income. It's that, the ability for us to continue to live, to innovate, that's where all the hope is. Maybe a better world will come tomorrow because human beings are living and thriving who can live and thrive if you can't put a, a really solid meal on the table, not just calories, right? So that, that's it. It's a, the one thing where, where economic conditions shouldn't determine what's going on the table tonight for dinner. Amazing. Great way to end. Michelle, first of all, thank you for doing this. Oh, please. Thank you. <laughs> we see each other a few times a year at various events, and it's always good to catch up, whether it's in person or over the phone. I don't know what to say to you because I know how giving you are and how generous you are. And I've heard chefs and cooks in their 20s talk about how much you do and look up to you. And I've heard chefs in their 50s and 60s and older that look up to you because of how much you do. And I know how much you do, but doing my research for this conversation, it happens often, but I was like, man, I, I, I think I have this list of what I know you do, but it's always like, it, it wound up being triple. <laughs> so, I mean, you, you truly live and breathe this. And thank you for sharing your voice. And I, and I, I appreciate I, it. I won't, I don't doubt it that there's gonna be a, a handful of people that are inspired by, by you, so. Thank, Thank you. you, Andrew. Yeah. I appreciate that, man. Thank you. Thanks again to Chef Michel Nishan. Find more on him at chefnishan.com. That's C-H-E-F-N-I-S. 
C-H-A-N.com. To learn more about Wholesome Wave, go to wholesomewave.org. Find me and keep up to date with this podcast across all social media platforms at Aunt Kathy's Plate or go to beyondtheplatepodcast.com. Beyond the Plate is on all the socials at BT Plate Podcast. This episode was produced by myself along with Ian Cohen, Joe Yetton, Sean Petrosian. Thank you to Sarah McLellan Lee for her digital media skills. Our music has been composed by Goldford. Find him at iGoldford. As always, special shout out to my wife, Katie. Please rate, review, and or subscribe to this podcast on your listening site of choice. Don't forget to join us this Friday for another episode of Beyond the Drink, our companion podcast of Beyond the Plate, made possible with the help of our friends at Deep Eddie Vodka. We're joined again by Austin's own Caitlin Smith, who's doing a hot drink this time around, our second one of the season. She's using coffee, my kind of cocktail. Thank you for listening to Beyond the Plate. I'm Cappy, and remember, there are never too many cooks in the kitchen.